everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we welcome back David Dow. How are you doing? I'm fine, David. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Um, so anything new in the death penalty these days? I would say that nothing is new since we last spoke. Texas is continuing to pursue death in several cases. Texas continues to schedule people who are on death row for uh, execution. And so the world of the death penalty has not changed very much in the active death penalty states of which Texas is one. So, so what's your thoughts on uh, the uh, death penalty case that's uh, ongoing in Oklahoma? Um, you know, um, I'm drawing a blank on, on Richard Gl- Richard Glossop. Glossop. I should know better than that. But um, I mean, that that's one of the more bizarre ones. It's a very crazy case. And for the listeners of yours who don't know what we're talking about. We're talking about a case where a guy called Richard Glossop is on death row in Oklahoma. He has always maintained his innocence. He was convicted of hiring somebody to kill his boss. And he's always said that he was his former boss. And he's always said that he was innocent. And what has happened in recent weeks or months is that the attorney general of Oklahoma has essentially, I think, if not been persuaded entirely by Glossop's claim of innocence, has been largely persuaded. He's been persuaded enough that he no longer thinks that Glossop's conviction can stand, much less death sentence uh, can stand. And even though the attorney general is saying, I don't have any confidence in the reliability of this conviction anymore. And the attorney general obviously is the highest ranking prosecutor in the state. The state's highest criminal court, Oklahoma, like Texas, Texas and Oklahoma are the only two states in the country that have two different Supreme Courts, one that hears civil cases and one that hears uh, criminal cases. And so Oklahoma's highest criminal court, which is called the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, has essentially refused to honor the desires of the attorney general to vacate uh, Glossop's conviction. And so other agencies of the state continue pressing forward, seeking 
Glossop's execution. And what happened most recently was that the Supreme Court of the United States issued a stay of execution. There were no recorded dissents. And so that's basically what's been happening with the Richard Glossop case in the last several months. But I'll tell you, a, I think, interesting backstory, David, that I don't think is too deep in the weeds, but you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Glossop's case has been in front of the U.S. Supreme Court previously. And the reason it was in front of the Supreme Court previously was not for any reason having to do with the reliability of his conviction, but Glossop was one of uh, several inmates who was challenging the constitutionality of Oklahoma's death penalty protocol, basically arguing that it was untested and there was a chance that it would cause him and others uh, excruciating pain. And what was interesting about that case was that even though the issue of the death penalty per se wasn't even presented by that case, that case had nothing to do with anything other than the mode of execution that Oklahoma uses. Nevertheless, Justice Breyer wrote this, I want to say, squirrely opinion, basically saying that he had reservations about the constitutionality of the death penalty, and he thought the court should maybe revisit the issue of the death penalty. And Justice Breyer has just always irritated me in death penalty cases because he's just a hand wringer. He expresses concern, expresses concern, and then he'll go three or four cases without saying a word and letting an execution go forward. And then he'll wring his hands some more in a case or two, and then he'll say nothing for the next three or four cases. But nevertheless, Justice Breyer took Glossop's case, which had nothing to do with the death penalty as a whole, as an opportunity to express his view that maybe the court should revisit the constitutionality of the death penalty. Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia, who was on the court at the time, wrote opinions specifically responding uh, to Justice Breyer. And, and Justice Scalia's opinion said that there was no doubt whatsoever about Glossop's guilt. That opinion, by the way, was joined by Justice Thomas. And so now here we are, seven years later, seven years after the Supreme Court swatted away Glossop's claim with two justices saying there was no doubt whatsoever about his guilt. And seven years later, the court unanimously appears to have some real serious questions about his guilt. And so in a way, the Glossop case is the story of the death penalty in a nutshell. It shows how completely arbitrary it is. It shows how one day everybody can be sure that some guy is guilty and then a few years later uh, not be so sure, sure anymore. And yet the wheels of the machine just keep on turning. And, you know, I, I think you're exactly right. And where I was actually headed was to point out that look how difficult it is, even when the attorney general believes that the, there's real doubt here uh, to, to stop this train. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. I think that's a fair point, which is that once somebody gets convicted and sentenced to death, it is simply hard to nudge that case off the rail uh, of inevitability. I frequently tell people that it is much easier to convict somebody who is not guilty than it is for an innocent person to get off of death row after he's been convicted, which is crazy when you 
think about it, but that is the truth of the way the legal system is set up. And in a way, I think Glossop's case embodies that. And, you know, they had uh, an investigation um, led by Republican legislators. And, you know, I try not to get partisan on this show, but, you know, I mean, I do find it telling when it's a Republican legislator saying, hey, wait, 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 <laughs> I think there's a problem here. Um, yes. you know, this isn't some bleeding heart, right? Yes, absolutely. I think that I could be I could be wrong about this, but I think that all of the justices on the Oklahoma highest criminal court are Republicans. Obviously, the attorney general is Republican. The elected district attorney of the county where Glossop was convicted are Republican. So the people keeping Glossop on death row and trying to move forward with his execution are Republicans, but the people trying to get him off of death row and get him a new trial are Republicans as well. Um, so where do you see this going or do you have any clue at this point? As people who I've worked with for a long time will tell you, uh, my predictions are always wrong. Um, so I'm going to tell you where I think this is going, but I'm just introducing the caveat that what I'm about to say is almost certainly wrong. I think that what will happen is that we will hear nothing about Glossop's case for a long time because the state officials are basically at an impasse um, and that eventually uh, he will get relief from either the equivalent of the pardon board and the governor um, or through some judicial mechanism. But I don't think at this point there's any realistic chance uh, that Glossop will be executed. There are simply uh, too many very deep questions uh, about his guilt. I mean, isn't like the safe way to do this just to postpone the execution until you settle the, the question of whether this guy is innocent? I mean, you don't have to like release the guy yet. And that's essentially what has happened as a result of the Supreme Court's intervention. But the Supreme Court's intervention doesn't have a fuse attached to it. Sometimes the Supreme Court will grant a stay pending something else. Uh, and this stay was not issued pending anything else. So it doesn't mean that it's infinite in duration, because obviously the state can go back to the Supreme Court at some point and say, this day has been in place long enough. Can you please uh, dissolve it? Or they can conduct some proceedings in the lower courts and then go back to the Supreme Court and say, we conducted additional proceedings, dissolve it. And that could very well happen. And I wouldn't be surprised if that stay gets dissolved on one of those grounds. But just because the stay goes away doesn't mean the Glossop automatically gets executed. Even once there's no longer a stay in place, the legal process still requires that an execution date be set. And then there will be additional litigation, I would suspect, leading up to that date, if a date uh, were to be set. So I think that the case, one thing I'm confident in saying is that the case is a long way from over. I don't think that we're going to have a resolution this month or next month or even before uh, Labor Day. How exactly it plays out, I don't really have confidence in my ability to predict that, but I am reasonably confident that however it plays out, it's going to take a while. Do you know if the Attorney General is the decider and whether or not, you know, this would go forward again to execution or 
I mean, or is it a passive process at this point? Um, I, I don't know who it is in Oklahoma that has the authority to set execution dates. It, it's it's going to be somebody in the either the governor's office or the attorney general's office. It's done statewide in Oklahoma, not on a county by county basis. And I don't know if that is done by the governor's office or by the attorney general's office, but it would be one of those. And so if you're asking me whether an execution date could be set, uh, the, the answer is, I think that as long as the Supreme Court stay is in effect, no, it can't. But if there are additional legal proceedings that the Supreme Court views as having satisfied the purpose of the stay that it issued, then yes, another date could be set. A date could be set, I'll put it this way. What the Supreme Court order does is it prohibits the execution from occurring. It doesn't prohibit the setting of an execution date. So in principle, an execution date could be set for six months out, eight months out, a year out, and then other legal proceedings would occur between now and then. And the question then would be whether the reason that the Supreme Court granted the stay or reasons had been largely satisfied by those additional legal proceedings. I guess what I'm asking is, given where the attorney general actually is on this, is there anyone else who can get this, you know, uh, to the point where um, it could proceed? And and I, I don't know the answer to that because I don't know what the governor's office thinks about this case. And obviously the 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 governor's office is involved in the setting of execution dates and the decisions with respect to people who were on death row in Oklahoma. And if the governor's office has expressed a view on this case, it was not something that came across my radar screen. I think that if the governor's office and, and the attorney general are on the same page, then the likelihood that there's going to be an execution date set uh, is really quite low. But if they're not on the same page, then I don't really know who wins an arm wrestling match between those two offices. Interesting stuff. But I keep coming back to the fact that, you know, here we have a, a case with a huge problem that we just doesn't seem like a, a, a simple solution for it. I think that uh, the problem uh, does have a solution. It's just a uh, solution that requires people to admit that maybe they were wrong about something. One of, the, one of the aspects of the death penalty system that I think is really most uh, insidious, and this is by no means limited to the death penalty system. I think that this is a feature of our culture. I think it's a feature of our politics. It's certainly a feature of our legal system. And that is that there is this notion that it is problematic to express doubt or to acknowledge that somebody was wrong about something. Courts don't like to acknowledge that they were wrong about something. Um, politicians don't like to acknowledge that they were wrong about something, at least in the criminal justice domain. Now, what's really crazy about this, of course, is that if you can just permit me this brief digression, in other contexts, the Supreme Court, at least, is anxious to say that past decisions were wrong. We obviously just saw a matter of months ago, uh, Roe against Wade, a decision that had been in place for 50 years, overruled in a decision where Justice Alito said that the court had been egregiously wrong. That's his phrase when it decided 
uh, Roe against Wade. Justice Thomas has for years now been saying that the Supreme Court was wrong when it decided a case called New York Times against Sullivan that granted special uh, protections to media defendants when they're sued for uh, libel or defamation. But when it comes when it comes to the death penalty, when it comes to the criminal justice system, the courts are never willing to say that they were wrong. It is very rare for district attorneys to say that they got a case wrong. There, there are counterexamples, and the counterexamples really prove the rule. And I think part of the reluctance to acknowledge error is that once people in a position of power start to acknowledge error in death penalty cases, they have really acknowledged that the system isn't perfect, that the system makes mistakes. And at some level, we all know that, but nobody wants to acknowledge that or admit that in the context of the death penalty system, because it means that we are acknowledging or admitting that we might be executing people who didn't commit the crime. And I think that even the most avid death penalty supporters um, feel horror when confronted with the prospect of the execution of an innocent person. And I think that that psychological reluctance to admit error is really tied up with the existence of the death penalty itself, because once you admit that the system can make mistakes, it becomes really hard to defend a system that can't correct those mistakes. And you can't correct a mistake if you've executed the person. I mean, the only thing I would push back on is that, you know, I do a lot of wrongful conviction cases too. Yeah. And it's just as hard, um, you know, with those wrongful conviction cases. Now, maybe that bleeds also into the death penalty, even on cases that aren't death penalty cases. But it just seems like, you know, it's really hard to get the system to correct itself. I agree. I, I agree. I'm not sure that you're pushing back so much as you're pushing sideways. Um, <laughs> and and I, I agree with you. I think that it's hard in non-death penalty cases as well. I think that one of the interesting things about the the recent attention to wrongful convictions, not just wrongful executions, but wrongful convictions is that since the late 1980s, when we started to be able to use DNA evidence to prove that somebody was uh, wrongfully convicted, the DNA cases are in a way the low hanging fruit. If you have somebody who is in prison and DNA proves that the person didn't do it, somebody say somebody was convicted of rape and we do some new DNA testing and it turns out that yes, in fact, the victim was raped, but not by the person who was convicted and you can prove it by showing uh, full genetic profile, people are willing to say, yeah, we made a mistake in that case. And so I think that there has been a willingness in cases where DNA is involved um, to acknowledge error. And yet for some reason that I don't really quite understand, other than to say that I think that it's psychologically necessary to the people who defend the integrity of the uh, convictions, people are quite unwilling to acknowledge error in cases where DNA isn't involved. And and why do you think that is? I mean, is it just a defense mechanism that people just don't want to admit that they made a mistake? I think people don't want to admit 
that they made a mistake in general, but I think that people are really reluctant to make a mistake when that mistake has cost another human being, if not his life, then still years of his life. There are people who are exonerated after 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years. And if you're the prosecutor who prosecuted that case and sent that person to prison, if you're the members of the jury who convicted that person, sent that person to prison, if you're the judge who presided over the case, the police officers who investigated it, there's a deep psychological reluctance to acknowledging error because to acknowledge error is to admit to yourself and to the public that your mistake costs somebody else a substantial portion of his life. And I'm saying his, by the way, because almost all of these cases involve men. Not 100% of them do, but almost all of them do. And people don't want to admit they're wrong when admitting they're wrong is also carrying with it the concession that they have destroyed somebody else's life. That's a hard thing to admit. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think we have, and, and I say we in kind of the generic sense, but, you know, it seems like we don't really acknowledge the extent to which these kinds of cases just destroy everyone's life. Right. Yes. I think that that's a very good point. I think that you've identified another reason that people don't like to admit error because it's not only the inmate, it's the inmate's family, but it's not even only the inmate and the inmate's family. What the consequence of a wrongful conviction does to the victim is also extremely dislocating. And so I think that there's a broad universe of people whose lives are turned upside down by the fact of an exoneration and necessarily by acknowledging error. Yeah, just, you know, you, you read what happens to people and, you know, everybody likes you know, the story where they walk out and everybody hugs and high fives and there's yeah. tears all around. And I think we've gotten a little bit better about, you know, um, providing support for people getting out. But even then, you know, the psychological damage of being in a prison on death row um, is enormous. What it does to the family of the person that's incarcerated for all that time is it basically destroys the family. Um, and, and so you see the kids go down all these paths and uh, you know, the marriage gets broken up and uh, you know, and, and it actually perpetuates crime. So, you know, this idea that, oh, just lock somebody up, you know, is gonna solve your crime and then all of a sudden you realize, hey, you got three or four more generations of crime now. <laughs> yes, I, I, what, what I would say about that, David, I, I, don't, I don't want to disagree too strongly, but there are any number of cases where family members of people who are in fact innocent stand by them and, continue, and insist on their innocence from the very get-go and are there to welcome 
their loved ones when they walk out of prison if their innocence is proved. That's not to dispute your point that in between the time of the wrongful conviction and the time of the reunion, all kind of terrible things can happen. Families can break up. Uh, kids can not have a, a father in the house because it's almost always a father and, and that can cause uh, all kinds of problems. So I'm not disagreeing with your point that that families can can be destroyed and can be injured and can be broken. But I've also seen families that resist th that outcome and are somehow, and how do they do it? I don't really know, um, but, there, but there are some that, that are. I've had clients who, who've been exonerated and um, most of them, I will say, um, not all, but most of them seem to be intact. Now I'm not a psychologist and I'm not their therapist. And so I can't tell you whether there are some deep cracks and fissures that, that I'm not seeing. Um, but even without being a psychiatrist, even without being a therapist, I can also tell you that I've had some clients who walk out of prison and they are not the same people anymore. And I think that it is probable that they will never uh, be the same be the same people yeah um so we're we're just about out of time here um you know i mean we just talked about the death penalty yes um and i you know one of the things about the death penalty that i think is interesting and i make this point also you know with wrongful convictions in general but you know by I think it's because of the scrutiny that it that it's put under. It kind of paints a picture of the entire criminal legal system, and and you start seeing the flaws really quickly in a death penalty case. Whereas, you know, often you cover it up, and you know, let's say it's a petty theft case, right? And the guy, you know, takes his plea agreement and and whatnot. So, you know, you just don't have that focus on all the layers of everything from from the attorney to the uh you know to the law enforcement to to the whole system yeah. i mean you know what kind of picture do we see now you know as we put all these pieces together i love that question that's a question that reminds me of the cliche about how when you're standing on the subway platform in New York and you see a rat on the platform, you know that there are thousands and tens of thousands of rats down the tunnel that you can't see. The presence of one is a signal of thousands of others. And what's interesting about the cases of wrongful conviction in the death penalty context is that those cases, that's the single rat on the subway platform. And so when you see a wrongful conviction in a death penalty case, you know that there are thousands of others in non-death penalty cases. The death penalty cases are getting substantially more scrutiny than the non-death penalty cases are, that people on death row are represented by lawyers for more legal proceedings than is true for people not on death row. And so the fact that the system is making mistakes in the domain where the inmates have the best lawyers, the largest number of legal proceedings tells you with mathematical certainty that many, many times that number of mistakes 
is occurring in the non-death penalty part of the criminal justice system. Why don't we care more about that? I, I can tell you why I think we don't care about more as a society. I, I think we don't care about that more as a society because the policymakers, the people who make decisions, your typical middle-class voter can't imagine being in that position. If you're a person of color, you can imagine being wrongfully convicted. If you're a middle-class white suburban husband, you just can't imagine that that's going to happen to you. And because you can't imagine that that's going to happen to you, it's just not an issue on your radar screen. I'm not saying that that person is a bad person. I'm saying that the sort of thing that we human beings worry about are things that we think could happen to us. You don't worry about dying in a plane crash if you never, ever get on an airplane. You don't worry about dying in an automobile accident if you never, never get in a car. And so I think that the reason that people don't worry about wrongful convictions is because they think I'm never going to have any contact uh, with the criminal justice system. And that's just a failure of empathy. That's just pure and simple, a failure of empathy. And I think if we had more empathy as human beings, then we'd be more concerned about the failures in the criminal justice system, even though they're not necessarily failures that are going to affect us individually or our families. Yeah, and I think that's a really good answer because, um, you know, the first case that I ever covered uh, was, um, you know, a wrongful conviction case, in my opinion, the guy's still in there. And, you know, the guy um, is Nepali, um, but he um, is a, a, was a professor. So well-educated, upper-middle-class family, living in the city of Davis, um, never thought anything, you know, like that would ever happen to him. And all of a sudden he gets thrown into this and, you know, he looked at the world through very different eyes after that. And, and I hear it time after time. I never thought something like this could happen to me. I always believed, you know, if I lived, you know, a good life and was responsible, I, I didn't have anything to worry about. And now all of a sudden my whole world has come crashing down on me. Um, and, but it's too late. Right. Yes. And there's an example. There's a very f famous example in Texas, um, of a guy called Michael Morton, who was convicted of murdering his wife. He was not sent to death row, but he was sent to prison, convicted of murdering his wife. He did not commit the crime. Um, but he was in prison for years before he was exonerated, largely through the efforts of the Innocence Project in New York. And he was a middle-class, middle-management white guy, lived in an area outside uh, of Austin. And his case commanded an attention in Texas that is not commanded by cases that involve people of color. And I think that that was because the people who are watching the local news and who are making editorial decisions at the newspapers look at this guy and think, wow, I know people like that. That could be me. And so all of a sudden, that case, it is fundamentally just like dozens, if not scores of other cases, gets disproportionate attention because Michael Morton looks like the people who run the newspapers, looks like the people who make editorial decisions on the local news shows, and so all of a sudden there's a lot of attention to a case involving a middle-class white guy because he's a middle-class white guy, not because the case is unique, 
but because the defendant is, if not unique, uh, unusual. Yeah, and, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. Um, but, you know, in some ways it's good uh, for those cases to arise because they definitely get people's attention. In other ways, it's kind of another indicator of of our, our racial biases uh, in this society. Yes, I think that that's right. I, I, I don't want to sound churlish. I'm glad that Michael Morton got out of prison. I'm no, glad the Innocence Project, you know, worked on that case. But I take your point and I agree with your point. I, I, I wish not that there was less attention paid to that case, but that there was more attention paid to all the other cases. That's probably and, a and, good way to put it. Yeah, and, I, and, there was, and there's, there's certainly plenty of bandwidth uh, to do that. It's just that people have to care about those other cases as much as they care about this one. And to care about those other cases as much as you care about this one requires that you have empathy for somebody who's different from you. Well, we're out of time. Uh, I want to thank you again for coming on and uh, sharing your thoughts. Really interesting discussion. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me back. And I'd be happy to come back anytime. It was a pleasure. David Dow talking about the death penalty. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.